Press Play, the Real Resilience podcast, dedicated to all things real to real. Are you aware of what you've let yourself in for? I listened to a show earlier in the week, and I was actually trying to get a pronunciation on your name, so I was listening to the... the <laughs> it's Ian. It's Ian. I-A-I-N, and it's spelled the Scottish way. Uh, I mean, I, I probably have a few more questions if we could, like... Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, just, sure. You know, I follow you, like, on social channels and stuff, and... Mm. You know, you seem pretty busy. Thanks to my guest on this podcast, Dan Labrie, for the kind words about my business. And as you will later hear, I'm not the only one who has a lot going on. But all this busy business is not through luck. As you may know, as well as this podcast, I create a number of avenues such as webinars, free downloads of real to real based docs, videos on the YouTube channel and an Instagram presence all with the aim of not just promoting real resilience, but the format in general. Now, another promotion I do is attend hi-fi shows here in the UK and deliver a presentation on Real to Real. I did three shows last year, and I've attended one show so far this year, the Audio Deluxe Show near the Silverstone Racetrack. In fact, you can hear the cars roaring around the circuit from the venue's car park. And I have two more shows booked for later in the year, and, most interestingly, a presentation to the professional sector at the end of 2023. Via these shows, I've noticed that interest in tape has definitely increased, with more people attending my presentation and, most importantly, asking questions, which can only be a good thing. Now, a random request for reversing tape has created a new product in the Real Resilience shop. Some research turned up pre-cut lengths of self-adhesive foil and when tested on two machines with different ways to reverse the tape, worked a treat. And, if peeled off, it doesn't leave a residue, which is another bonus. So, you can now find a pack of 12 strips, which is about how many manufacturers used to include with the machine back in the day, on the Real Resilient shop. A small request before we move on, and I really should ask this more, as everybody else seems to who produces a podcast, and that is to follow us in your podcast app. We are on all the regular platforms, so please like, subscribe, or do whatever you need to do in your app to do that. Thanks in advance. Subscribe to the Press Play podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your pods. We come to my guest, Dan Labrie, for this episode of Press Play. We had such a great conversation, and once we got going, talked for well over an hour, so I've decided to split that into two parts. Part two will cover Dan's company, Myriad Magnetic, and you can find that at myriadmagnetic.com. That's all one word. But part one, we start with Dan's background and the way he got into the business of supporting reel-to-reel tape machines under the tutelage of the much-respected Mike Spitz of ATR Magnetics. I attended a conference when I was still in school, and I would I mentioned to somebody like a mentoring program. I said, "Oh, hey, uh, I want to work with tape machines." and and they're like, oh, well, you know, the few, like the handful of people I told that to, they said, well, you know, there's only so many people you can really speak to. And I think people have told me to contact like Jay McKnight at MRL and then Mike Spitz at ATR. And so, you know, I wrote both of them and kind of started a dialogue. And, you know, with Mike, it was sort of like an opportunity starting to bud. And so, you know, when I finished school, I, I wrote him again and said, I'm looking for a job. And, you know, he told me I don't have anything available. I said, well, can I come meet you anyway? I'm curious enough about what you do to come see your shop. And the the meeting went well. And, 
you know, you kind of get to see, well, I didn't know exactly what he did anyway. Just like he was just one of the, the main players at the time. So, you know, I went home and worked in a, got like a tech job at a local studio doing caps and switches on a console. And then um, about six months later, I got word from Mike with a, a job offer that said, if you, if you move down here, there's a, a job for you now. It wasn't like, not like your typical finishing university first job, but it was what I wanted to do working with tape machines. And, you know, he was making magnetic tape with HDR magnetic at the time too. So it was like kind of this whole ecosystem of, of analog recording to be involved in. Yeah. I made the move and started working for him and there was another technician there and I'd never seen an ATR 100 before, you know, I started there. It was just, um, I just knew that they were doing machines. And then we kind of learned the like sort of really high end specialty shop, single model specialists. It was uh, a learning curve, but it was all, at least it wasn't too spread out. And um, between Mike and the other fellow Bill, you know, uh, enough training to get you going and you find, you know what you need to do with whatever sort of month number one request that a you know, technician would be expected to handle find order parts or recap this card. That's it. The testing and the troubleshooting will come later once you like see many problem after problem after problem. So, but it, it was the really nice thing about being there was that he didn't just keep me in the service shop. He said that at the time the the two companies were in different buildings. So he said, okay, a couple of days this week, you're going to be, doing a power supply the other couple of days, I need you over at the tape plant, you know, filling in, doing whatever you can to help with production. And so, you know, you don't really think about how unique it is, but at this point, you know, 12 years on, you look back and you think, Oh, wow. I I spent part of my time training troubleshooting machines. The other time being involved in having a hand in the manufacturing process of new tape. And I like that perspective. I get to study the media and the, the state of the art of the media over time, you know, in order to make a better product today. You also get to be involved in taking an old machine and making it usable for today's studio. Well, that strikes me. You've got a greater introduction to the end-to-end from tape machine and tape than I have because knowing about how tape is produced, you know, the actual sort of software that these machines use is something that I imagine a lot of engineers don't get to see on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I know about tape. I know how it's constructed. I know how it is made, but I've never actually seen it. I've never actually, you know, the they talk about, you know, the binder. We all talk about, you know, the issues the binder faces on some tapes on the issues of tape face. And we know it's oxide. We know it's got a backing, but I've never actually seen it manufactured. And to you, have got that experience and that knowledge that many people working in in with this format haven't just haven't got yeah yeah well you know it's, it's like a triangle right the, my deficiency would be the um that application side so you know where the engineer would say oh yeah i lined up a tape machine every day for the first 20 years of my career and then i recorded a band for the next 20 years of my career you know they're like well versed in preparing a machine you're using equipment dealing with a, an artist or production technique and, you know, they would say like, oh, yeah, but the, the glue and the, the rust or something, you know, just kind of g- generically speaking about the, like you said, the software, mm. the media, that's my deficiency. But it's like sort of like the area to move into as far as trying to get the whole picture. And I think we all want the whole picture. But, yeah, I'm coming at it now yeah, doing machine preparation, 
not necessarily used, but then, like you said, being involved in the, the formulation or studying formulations of tapes. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Way back on, on these podcasts, I did interview uh, Betty Spitz, who's Mike's uh, widow. Can you tell me a little bit more than perhaps I've already gleaned from what uh, Betty told me about ATR and about Mike and his standing in tape machines in the US? Before he made tape or got involved in making manufacturing tape, I think he was incredibly regarded for his work with ATR 100. And I think he had full intention on producing a, a new tape machine at the time. You know, we're talking 2005. And that was sort of his goal after building machines for rebuilding machines for 15 years. And then it was like pretty bizarre to read articles about quantity workers returning from a Christmas holiday in 2005 or 2006 to a sign that said plant closed. And so it's almost like this news reverberates, you know, through a town and through an industry that there's no longer a major tape manufacturer. And I'm not even sure what the, the European market was doing at that time for tape manufacture, but um, I studied it all like in retrospect, right? I graduated from school in 2010 and I'm looking at events, you know, in 2005, 2006. And then you see how the need for a media manufacturer to emerge sort of takes precedent over, you know, why hardware when there's no software? So you wouldn't make a machine without the backing of, of new media being around. So, you know, the, the direction had to be rerouted. You know, co- I, I guess it's coincidental, but you see RMGI and ATR magnetics pop up with new offerings around the same time. I don't know if that's unfortunate or it's a good thing because then you have for you know users in the States, you have a domestic producer and for Europe and the rest of the world, you have a, a large scale producer as well with provenance of BASF and you know the like. So like he had backing from really taking care of people for 15 plus years. You know, a lot of studio people are having their rebuilds done by Mike or upgrading their systems with him at the time. So he had a good book to to build a, a media manufacturer off of. And, you know, I think they hit the market in 07 or so. I came on three years later and I, I, I'm out of school, you know, with a almost like a recording degree. But I get to be involved in the chemistry and, you know, you're around a fascinating process that's the sales pitch is that you get to create the the media for a hit record to be made on. So you have a hand, your hand in it, but really like you don't have anything to do with that. Don't do yourself down. (laughs) Don't do yourself down. I'd say though for Mike, you you said about 2005. Um, That must mean quite, and, and he was talking about, potentially creating a new machine and indeed just creating new media. But that must have been quite a gamble because my experience in Europe was that the, the BBC really phased tape out by 2000 and they were behind the curve. You know, the, the, re- the recording industry had probably ditched it by about 96 or 97. And I recall I had a couple of beautiful Revox B77 machines lined up, all ready to go. And I sold each one for the equivalent of probably about $125 each. 
You know, you couldn't give them away. This is 2001, like just take them away. Now we're shifting them around about sort of eight hundred, nine hundred dollars, equivalent in in the UK. I'm not entirely sure how that transfers, um, uh, sort of value wise in in the states. But you know, they, they have trebled in trebled and quadrupled in price. But that must be quite a gamble then in 2005 to say I'm going to make a new machine. Was the business there at that time? I I, I don't know specifically. You know, again, like. It, the idea had come and gone before I even joined the team. You know, I guess I was like graduating high school when he was kicking around that idea. So from my perspective and doing, you know, working for those companies for a dozen years, is that like you almost are in a bubble where you're you're so specialized on one model. It has like value and appreciation by your customer base and there's new people coming in involved in it. So if he's 15 years on serving high-end analog, creating new plug-in modules, creating, you know, external electronics package, the ARIA with Dave Hill, what seems like the next logical step? Well, I guess, you know, doing your own mechanical suite, you know, almost like we're seeing today with mm-hmm. some of the mechanical designers that, that are releasing machines. So it probably wouldn't have, I don't know what this, you know, the scale would have been as small as any other of the projects likely, but it's my understanding that that was the goal at the time. So you learned your your craft in in tape and tape machines at, at ATR. You've now set out out on your own with the Myriad Magnetic. Was that as a result of Mike's passing and you felt I've got to get a new job? Because I know obviously Bessie's still running ATR Magnetics, but is it something you just felt I want to set my own path and start my own business, um, offering support? Yeah, but you know, in a long time coming, so. Mike's passing was, you know, it was difficult, you know, for everybody involved. This is, it's like, you know, you got a couple of smaller groups dealing with a, a great amount of change. You know, I came on April of 2010 and he passed in the fall of 13. And so it's a short window of tutelage of me even working, you know, under him. And, you know, now here we are in 23 nearly 10 years on from his passing. So I stayed on board with ATR and, or, you know, sort of, again, kind of balancing where, where, wherever one's needed, you know, working for Betty. And if initially it was like, someone's got to answer the phone. Okay. Well, you know, I have the most experience to, to do that. And, you know, I think my response to every caller for the first few months was I'll call you back. You know, I'll look that up and I'll call you back. And, you know, then after a while, you start to be able to answer the question on the phone, you know, and then you find yourself taking orders and finding yourself needing to order parts. And almost there you start to plug in. And that was able to happen with with ATR services and, and the machine work for me. And then with ATR magnetics, you kind of have this machine building tape. And that's sort of the the role that was available after his passing was to kind of come in and I would be less involved in the manufacturing, but then on a daily basis, but then you're still involved and someone's got to answer the phone. And, you know, it's a, to me, it's it's an inherently technical product and, you know, you have to be able to field the question, you know, coming in on phone or email. And one thing I learned about analog tape users is that they all kind of refer to the same thing, very many different ways. (laughs) So, (laughs) You know, like if you, you know, we're talking about uh, binder earlier 
or the adhesive or the glue or the, the what, what have you. Um, everybody has a slightly different, their teacher used a different phrase when they were coming up. So, um, you know, I find myself in the role of the, the support person on t- telling people how to bias their machine or, you know, what the equivalent tape would be, but also kind of, you know, you deal with this idea of troubleshooting the, you know, it's, it's not a problem free media and neither are the machines. And so you're having machine experience when trying to troubleshoot media manufacturer problems, you know, was invaluable, but there was a need for that person there as well. So it was, it was a great opportunity to be able to plug into his place, you know, for both of those companies, because if there was just opportunity there and, you know, opportunity, I, I felt to grow 10 years on or so the, the tape manufacturing became solidified and became more reliable in the production. You know, after you've been producing for so long, you, you learn what to, what to change to, to improve. So those support requests go down. You create a little bit of enrichment material for the consumers to kind of educate themselves. And then I found myself, you know, mostly doing the machine work. And I felt that I, I wanted to have another more opportunity for growth and, I, I, you know, I had a, a, a great working relationship with Betty. We we continued it long after Mike's passing. It was just uh, time for me to to move forward and, and and give myself an opportunity to to work on, as you can see, other things behind me in the background <laughs> beyond ATR one hundreds. You know, yeah. I want to learn other machines, and I want to I want to support people doing doing all kinds of analog uh, recording. So that's that's how I got here. This is Press Play. The Real Resilience Podcast, dedicated to all things real-to-real. In part two, which will be episode 25, we talk about Dan's company, Myriad Magnetic, and the many aspects of professional users' uptake, or reuptake perhaps, of the format in the recording studio. At the start of this episode, Dan wanted to know a bit more about the person he was talking to, so I outlined how I got started and where I got my experience in real-to-reels from. If you rewind all the way back to episode one, you'll hear a bit more about me. But a condensed version is here, and I'll leave you with that. So until the next time, let's keep it real. Play. Well, my background is the BBC. I started in uh, 18th of January 1988 as a studio support engineer. So it's basically looking after the equipment, uh, not pushing all the faders. I didn't do any of that. So yeah. I was based at Broadcasting House in London, which is where the national radio services come out from. And then I went to their Made of studios, which uh, is their music recording studios used for a lot of sessions. Uh, probably from about the 1970s, the BBC used to put its own kit into um uh, doing those sessions and suddenly realized about the 1980s that needed to be more commercial uh, so as a result they put ssl desks in and um studio 800 multi-tracks and a80 uh two tracks they always used a80 and telefunken in their radio mm-hmm. operations and have been for the 1970s so i worked there and also worked at their outside broadcast department which is out on the trucks um working at places like the the proms and glastonbury festival um looking after the equipment on the lorries i did a lot 
actually a base maintenance. I very rarely went out on location. Um, I basically looked after the equipment after it all come back from being thrown around in a in a muddy field or, or stuff like that. <laughs> so, uh, tape machine wise, we had a mixture of Studio AA10s and uh, we had a Sony PCM3324 dash machine and a lot of AA20 multi tracks as well. One of the things I did was line four of those up for a concert the BBC did for well, they recorded U2 on the uh, what was it New Year's Eve concert I can't remember it was about 1989 1990 in Dublin and RTE the state broadcaster there um, asked the BBC to record it because basically that made a bigger infrastructure and in return U2 wanted the multi-track so I lined up four 24-track AA20 machines which went out in a lorry and, and we synced them together to make a 46-track machine there was 118 sources coming off the stage I mean like it's a four-piece band 118 sources um, <laughs> so we lined a 46-track machine up and they just worked as tag teams uh, the, the, the two multi-tracks to record the session right I never knew what happened to the tapes. They never saw the light of day. I've got a recording of the concert actually on cassette, which I recorded yeah, off yeah. air. But um, I spent, must have been about a week before they went out to Dublin in the base maintenance area, just lining 24-track A820s up. And boy, you, you can feel it in your sleep after you've done four of those. <laughs> Um, and then I went out to their um, chain. Of, the BBC's got a chain of uh, local radio stations, county-wide stations around uh, around England. And I worked in uh, Cambridge, Radio Cambridgeshire, um, there for about five years, where it was uh, Studio B67s and Studio A807s and a few PR99s as well, which they use. It, their local radio is much, much less technically appointed uh, than the network and the national services. Sure. But it's still sure. quite fun because you've got hands-on to do things, actually push faders and did some some recording oh, and okay. stuff like that. <laughs> and because it's Cambridge and very sort of seat of learning with the university, I got to do roundtable discussion programs with sort of eminent professors and also local symphony <laughs> orchestra and there was a jazz festival they did doing the jazz festivals weird because it's like 12 guys on stage all playing different tunes it really was uh, like <laughs> just what, what what am i recording here um, but yeah uh, the bbc sent me on a music balance course so i sort of learned how to push faders and do the artistic bit which was really good nice. but yeah. i've done the um uh, the maintenance side so i did that till 1990s did studio installations building radio stations tv studios in i built them in norway spain india and and lebanon as well i built uh, studios there and um, and stations and did that till about 2012 uh, i worked back at the bbc on a contract um installing their main broadcast center in london uh, which is the one they're still using and yeah. then about 2012 people started asking me about tape machines which i've done nothing with for 10 years and it's just gone like that since and then lockdown happened and you know people just saying can you fix this can you fix that yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's where we are that's where we are so well, uh, a long thank story you very much thank you very much <laughs> it's great it's, it's, it's awesome